Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 50 Spelljammer and Dragonlance. I have to admit that deep dives on Spelljammer and Dragonlance have been on my list of show topics since I began this podcast about a year ago. But the fact that they've both been in the gaming world news over the past couple of weeks made them perfect for this week's show. For those who don't know what's going on, Wizards of the Coast announced a couple of weeks ago that official product will be published for both settings for the 5th edition by the end of 2022. This news has gotten mixed responses from the gaming community, especially within the D&D gaming community. Those who've been fans of the setting are, as you might expect, excited to see their favorite campaign settings getting the official upgrade for 5th edition. Those who didn't care for them have written things along the lines that Wizards should have spent the energy in either upgrading other settings or creating new ones. Those who had no opinion one way or the other have basically been silent, though I have seen a post or two from folks who admit to not knowing either setting or caring about them for that matter, but don't care if people buy them or don't. For me, I see it like this. If Wizards is publishing new content for any game setting, that means there are writers and creator types who, in theory, should be getting some attention for their work. That should also, in theory, be leading to a payday, which, while not in the set-for-life range, is still important because we've all got bills to pay, you know? Whether I ever choose to purchase the settings and play them or not, their existence doesn't impact me personally in any way, except, of course, to provide me with a couple pages of extra content for today's show. So I'm choosing to say live and let live. That being said, there is one part of the announcement that does bother me a bit, and that's the report that neither Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss, who are the creators of Dragonlance, or Jeff Grubb, who is the creator of Spelljammer, have had any involvement in these new books. While I understand the concept of new minds, fresh ideas, I also believe that Wizards could have, at least as a courtesy, offered the creators of these settings the chance to be involved. If they couldn't agree on money, or if they had a difference of opinion on how the settings should work in the new edition, then that would be a completely different thing. But to not even offer them a chance to be involved? Now, I admit, I haven't read anything that says they were denied a chance to be involved. I do need to note that Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss will have a new trilogy of books coming out. We'll talk about that in a minute. But insofar as being involved with the actual D&D setting material, I I've heard no. Now, I do have to admit, every so-called journalist out there has their own position on any given topic. However, I do also need to point that neither Hickman, Weiss, or Grubb have released anything to contradict what's been written so far, so we're going to have to wait and see where things go from here. Okay, with the recent developments discussed, let's get into the history of these two systems. And I need to note that I will be providing information on the 5th edition books coming out during the individual deep dives, so whatever info I've been able to dig up on them will be there. With that, let's crank up the tour bus and head for our first stop, Spelljammer. The Spelljammer setting was, as I mentioned a minute ago, designed by Jeff Grubb and released by TSR in November of 1989. It was designed for the second edition of AD&D, and its goal was to bring the rules of AD&D into space, though admittedly a fantasy space setting instead of the more science-based settings of other games. Spelljammer was also a part of the movement at TSR to design multiple new settings, the rest of which we'll discuss further in a future episode. 
Spelljammer, AD&D Adventures in Space, was the first official release. It was a boxed set, as most of the first releases for new campaign settings were at the time, and provided all the rules a DM would need to run an AD&D game in space. I'll get more into the specifics of the setting in a bit, but there's another really cool thing about Spelljammer that you'll want to hang around to hear. It's coming up. This was followed in 1990 with Lost Ships, Realm Space in 1991, and the Astro Mundi Cluster in 1993. All three of those entries were boxed sets, though boxes weren't the only published items for the setting. Over the course of 2nd edition, a total of 20 books were published in the line, and that number includes two separate monstrous compendium appendixes were published in 1990 and 1991. While sales of the Spelljammer line weren't as high as the Forgotten Realms or even Dragonlance, the line did sell well enough to remain in print in some form until shortly before the sale of TSR to Wizards of the Coast in 1997. TSR chose to shut the line down just before the sale was finalized. However, the legacy of Spelljammer would live on. While Forgotten Realms got all the glory when 3rd edition was released in 2000, by 2002, a number of Spelljammer fans were wondering when or if they'd get to see their favorite setting in an official product. The answer was yes, but sort of. In May of 2002, Dungeon Magazine issue number 92 had an article titled, Spelljammer, Shadow of the Spider Moon. That article provided 3rd edition rules for firearms, spell jamming, and skills, feats, and prestige classes comparative to the Spelljammer setting. However, rather than update classic Spelljammer monsters like the Neogi and Gif, creatures from the monster manual such as Drow were used. Insofar as a full-fledged book, fans would have to wait until 2005. In May of that year, Wizards of the Coast released the supplement Lords of Madness. While not an official Spelljammer book, it did update the Neogi to the 3.5 edition rules, give a sample map of a crashed Spelljamming vehicle, and provided more information on the Neogi than had been published in more than a decade. It should also be noted that the development of the open game license, which we discussed in detail in a previous episode that's available in the archives, non-Wizards material had the opportunity to make its way to the market. While it seems that nobody published Spelljammer materials at that time, a number of fans of the system took to the internet to post their own homebrewed updates of Spelljammer to first 3rd edition and then later to 3.5. For the record, this also happened for 4th edition and I'd bet it's been happening for 5th edition as well. If you're curious, drop it into a Google search and make your way down the rabbit hole that is the internet. Now, I got a bit ahead of myself there, so let's back up a step and discuss Spelljammer's presence in 4th edition. Material from the system did show up in this version of the game, as the Manual of the Planes described the rules for using spell jamming ships to travel between planes. The authors of that book also took the opportunity to provide as much information about how the process would work as they could squeeze into that particular section. Again, other than that, the only Spelljammer materials I could find came from fans of the setting who posted their own materials online. In the present edition of D&D, which is 5th, Spelljammer content has actually already appeared twice. The first appearance was in the 2018 adventure Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage. In that adventure, there's a spelljamming ship and its illithid captain on the 19th level of the dungeon that appear to be stranded there. Emphasis, by the way, on appear. 
Appearance number two was in October of 2021, when the PDF Travelers of the Multiverse was released as part of the Unearthed Arcana Public Playtest series. Of note, there were four player races, the Autonome, GIF, Hadazi, and Plasmoid that were very closely tied to the Spelljammer setting. And for the record, that was four of the six provided races. That ratio caused several gaming publications to theorize that the playtest was probably leading to a Spelljammer reboot. And while at the time there was a lot of gamers laughing at those reports, they actually turned out to be true. As I mentioned at the top of the show, just a couple of weeks ago, Wizards of the Coast officially announced a new boxed set, which they've titled Spelljammer Adventures in Space. It's set for an August 16th, 2022 release date and will have three 64-page hardcover books. Astral Adventurer's Guide, which is basically a Dungeon Master's Guide for Spelljammer. Boo's Astral Menagerie, which is essentially a monster manual for Spelljammer. And Light of Zarixis, which is an adventure module. The box will also include a DM screen, which isn't a shocker to me, as Wizards tends to release new DM screens for most all major releases, including some of their adventure modules. One other note on this new release, there will be a prequel adventure, Spelljammer Academy, released for free on Wizards of the Coast's website and on D&D Beyond in July of 2022. For the record, I'm seeing that all of the major online retailers are already accepting pre-orders for the new box. Of course, since we always promote utilizing your friendly local neighborhood game store, I would suggest you head in there as soon as you can and ask about doing a pre-order of the box for yourself. Let me drive off into the weeds for a second and explain why you should pre-order from your local game shop right now. Most game shops order a set number of books or box sets of new materials based on metrics from previous sales, combined with what they believe the interest will be in any new game and the amount of product the distributors will allow them to order. What that means for our purposes is this. You could wait until August 16th to head into the store and try to buy a box set. However, if your local store only ordered a dozen and they flew off the shelves before you could get to them, you're going to have to wait until they get more in. However, if you pre-order the set through your local store, you guarantee they'll have a shiny new box waiting for you when you drop into the store on release day, since they'll make sure to order enough for all their pre-orders plus whatever they order to stock the shelves. One more thought on this before we get back on topic. I can't speak for your local game shop on this, even though I just kind of did. I do know that the local shops that I frequent can and will allow patrons to place pre-orders for pretty much anything they'll carry with either a partial payment or a full payment up front. However, your local shop may have its own policy, which is why I strongly suggest that if you haven't done it already, you need to drop in there soon and ask them about their policy. Again, support your local shop whenever you can, folks. Okay, before we dive into the specifics of the settings, I wanted to look into some of the other Spelljammer-related materials that have appeared on the market over the years. Between September of 1990 and November of 1991, DC Comics published 15 comics that were set in the Spelljammer universe. The creative team for these titles were Barbara Kessel, Michael Collins, and Dan Panosian. TSR, as was its style at the time, also published six novels set in that universe. Called The Cloakmaster Cycle, the books followed the story of Teldin Moore and his quest with his powerful and cursed magical cloak. The titles in the series are Beyond the Moons, written by David Cook and released in July of 1991, Into the Void by Nigel Findlay, which dropped in October 1991, The Maelstrom's Eye by Roger E. Moore, released in May of 1992, The Radiant Dragon by Elaine Cunningham, 
came out in November of 92. The Broken Sphere, written by Nigel Findlay, dropped in May of 93, and The Ultimate Helm by Russ T. Howard, September of 1993. There was also an official computer game set in the universe called Spelljammer Pirates of Realm Space. It was published by SSI and released in 1992. However, in 2002, there was a little something called the Arcane Space Tile Set, created and released for the game Neverwinter Nights. It was developed by a team of freelance game modifier developers and included a ton of Spelljammer setting materials for use in the very popular game. And since we're talking about the resurrection of the setting, I would be remiss if I didn't note that there's a brand new live play streaming series using the Spelljammer setting. Called Legends of the Multiverse, it began streaming on the official Dungeons & Dragons channels on April 27th, 2022, and has a host of names you might recognize, like Deborah Ann Wall, B. Dave Walters, Gina Darling, Megan Kenrick, and Todd Kenrick. The show also promises a stellar roster of guest stars, but I'll let you head over to their official channel to find out who some of them are going to be. So if you want a taste of what the books are going to look like, sounds like this show is going to be the pretty good place to start. All right, so we need to do one more thing before we break down the setting, and that's look at reviews. i got to admit, I was shocked to see the reviews. I mean, even though I knew going into my research that the setting wasn't necessarily the most popular of the D&D settings over the years, yeah, these, these were extra. In January of 1990, James Wallace gave his opinion of the game in issue 12 of Games International. Writing about Spelljammer, AD&D Adventures in Space, he focused on what he saw as inconsistencies in the combat rules. He said, quote, The cumulative effect of these inconsistencies is to make space combat unplayable. End quote. Later, he would say that the background was, quote, imaginative and consistent, but unfortunately, there is little of it. End quote. Overall, he gave the setting two out of five and said this, quote, Spelljammer may score well physically, but fails mentally. Scavenging AD&D players who enjoy stripping tasty ideas from the carcasses of dying games might find it of interest, but I cannot recommend it to anyone else. End quote. Over time, however, opinions about the game changed. In October of 2021, Alexander Soa wrote for CBR advocating for the release of a Spelljammer setting for 5th edition. He said, quote, Players have been asking for Spelljammer to be introduced to 5e since the release of the first setting sourcebook. Wizards tossed him a bone with the Dream of the Blue Veil spell added to Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, but it's not a replacement for the niche Spelljammer previously filled. End quote. Spelljammer was also listed at number three on the Gamers 2022 list of the eight best Dungeons & Dragons settings ever. So, I guess the old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder, is true. At least in the case of Spelljammer. Okay, so with all the other background covered, let's take a look at the setting itself. After all, we need to understand what was so different about Spelljammer that makes it so special to those who swear by it. The entire idea behind Spelljammer was, as I mentioned at the top of the show, to bring some sci-fi to your AD&D world, though I noted that the sci-fi was way more fantastic fiction than science fiction. Jeff Grubb designed an entire system of fantasy astrophysics for the game and based a lot of it on the concept of crystal spheres. A crystal sphere is a giant spherical shell that contains an entire planetary system. While the actual size of the spheres differs, what is consistent is that the size of the sphere is roughly twice the diameter of the planet that is the farthest from the sun or planet at the center of the sphere. Whew, 
let's try an example. If our solar system was in a crystal sphere, its diameter would be double the size of Pluto's orbit. There you go. Sorry, science folks, I'm considering Pluto a planet for my example. Anyway, if you know that orbit size, you know that that would be one hell of a large sphere. Each of these spheres have what are known as portals in them, and those allow spell-jamming ships and wild space creatures to pass through to either enter or exit the sphere. Oh, and you're probably going to need magic to locate and open or close a portal. Just a warning. A spell-jamming ship is controlled by a spell-jamming helm. The setting books themselves get into the magical inner workings that explain why a spell-jamming helm works. But the basics of one is that any spellcaster can sit on one and operate the ship. It should also be noted that the rules, along with a large number of players over the years, have pointed out that some magics don't work as well in this setting as they do in other settings. In other words, that really cool spell your caster uses on a regular basis might fizzle out on them the first time they try to cast it in space. Or it might be way more powerful than it would usually be. Either way, it can lead to a, well, that sucks moment. The setting as a whole gets its name from the Spelljammer, which is a legendary ship that looks like a manta ray. also has an entire city on its back. The legends of the ship are known by just about everyone, but the number of folks who've ever actually seen it are very few. It is also where the names for pretty much everything related to Spelljamming come from. One more interesting point for the Spelljammer setting is this. Most of the other settings in the AD&D line are encased in crystal spheres. This was the cool thing I wanted you to hang around for. So what this means is that you could, in theory, take your adventuring party from the Forgotten Realms, get them a spell jamming ship, and then have them relocate to Dragonlance or Greyhawk. However, there are two notable exceptions, Dark Sun and Ravenloft. It's been noted, however, that there's not a solid reason for Dark Sun not being in a crystal sphere, so if you wanted to connect it using Spelljammer, you most certainly could. The argument behind Ravenloft not being a part of this is that Ravenloft is traditionally a demiplane, which makes its physics and such way different from everyone else's, and basically means there's not a reasonable method one could utilize to have it be a part of a Spelljammer game. I think it goes without saying, which means I'm going to say it anyway, that if you try to apply real-world science properties to Spelljammer, you're going to take all of the fun out of it. After all, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's got physics all its own, and they definitely don't correspond to the real world. But if you're looking for a way to take your barbarian, cleric, sorcerer, and bard to space, this will probably be the setting for you to try. Next up on our tour is the setting I'd bet good money most of you have at least heard of, if not either played in or read one of the numerous books written in it. Dragonlance. The story of the creation of this legendary title begins well before its actual publication. The husband and wife team of Tracy and Laura Hickman had been collaborating on self-published adventure modules such as Rahasia, which was released in 1979, and Pharaoh, which came out in 1980. In 1982, Tracy was unemployed, but TSR had seen promise in him due to the strength of a number of adventure modules he'd submitted to them. That strength led to TSR bringing him on board, and he'd write the Ravenloft module in 1983. However, as the Hickmans drove from Utah to Wisconsin to take this new job, they developed a setting idea of their own. It was actually two ideas that they eventually tied together. An entire world that could be used to support a storyline, and a world dominated by dragons. TSR loved this new idea, because even though the game was called Dungeons & Dragons, they felt they had way too many dungeons and not nearly enough dragons at that time. 
Tracy's initial proposal was for 12 different adventure modules, each module featuring a different dragon. Lofty as that thought was, Harold Johnson, another TSR employee, suggested that Tracy reach out to other members of the TSR staff for ideas and support. He did, and Jeff Grubb, Larry Elmore, Roger Moore, Doug Niles, and Michael Williams were among the staff who collaborated with Tracy as he further developed the Hickman's grand setting. At this same time, Margaret Weiss was also working for TSR, though her job was to write and edit endless quest books for the company. It wouldn't be your job for a whole lot longer, but we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. It didn't take too long for Tracy's project to get the official green light, as well as a cover name. Called Project Overlord, TSR decided this new setting would be an entire franchise with modules, board games, lead miniatures, novels, the whole shooting match, which was kind of a completely new idea for TSR at the time. For the record, it was the development team who had proposed the idea of novels, and TSR decided to hire a writer for the books. Weiss was shifted over to the novel side of Project Overlord, but her job was to be the editor and work with Tracy to shepherd the hired writer through the process. However, they quickly decided they didn't really like what the hired author was producing and decided on their own that they should be the ones writing the book. Which, from Hickman's perspective, makes sense, since he and his wife were the ones who came up with the idea in the first place. So, Weiss and Hickman spent a weekend working on what became the prologue and the first five chapters of the first novel. They presented their work to TSR, who preferred theirs over the hired author and promptly fired the author. Yeah, that prologue and five chapters written over a weekend wound up being the book Dragons of Autumn Twilight, which was released in November of 1984. In March of that year, the first module had been released, titled Dragons of Despair. Now, for the record, the plan at this time was to tie the novel into the completed module, which is why the module released before the book. Weiss and Hickman needed all of the names and the places that would appear in the module before they could finish the book, so they had to play second citizen, as it were. For all of that, TSR had decided that the novel probably wouldn't be a success, and according to multiple reports, tried to only order 30,000 copies to be printed. Fortunately for readers, 50,000 was the minimum order, so that's what they went with. <laughs> Needless to say, they shouldn't have worried. The novel flew off the shelves, forcing TSR to order multiple printings in order to meet demand, and bringing in a tidy little profit for the company. While Weiss and Hickman were pleased with their success, there was one part of the process that annoyed them, and that was the fact that they had to wait for modules to be released before the novels could be completed and released. To them, it made the novels feel like a retread of the modules. So they convinced TSR to reverse the process moving forward. The novels would be released, then the modules were written and released. That way, the modules would support the novels instead of the other way around. It also didn't take long for Dragonlance to become truly its own brand, with calendars, computer games, books of artwork, and other products being developed in addition to the modules and novels. As the 1980s chugged along, Dragonlance continued to ride high, selling big numbers of novels and more than enough modules to continue to justify their budgets. According to several published reports, however, Weiss and Hickman were again unhappy. They believed they were underappreciated. After all, their novels had changed the game for TSR, both figuratively and literally. With all of that, they felt like they just weren't being treated like they should be. Which is not to say they wanted the world, just a portion of that world that equaled the efforts that they'd put out. The breaking point at the time was when TSR turned down their Dark Sword series of novels. 
Undaunted, they went to Bantam Books, who saw the opportunity before them and made what has been reported as a more than generous offer to publish their work. And no, it was not a Dragonlance line, just so we're clear on that. This, of course, led to Weiss and Hickman leaving TSR. They would return, however, in 1995, writing Dragons of Summer Flame. At the time, they believed this would be the final Dragonlance novel, since their relationship with TSR was, at best, rocky. There was something else as well, but we need to back up a few years to understand it. So, by looking at the publication year for the first module and novel, 1984, we know that Dragonlance was part of the first edition of AD&D. When AD&D got its second edition in 1989, Dragonlance updated itself moving forward as well, with the modules using the rules from that edition. However, in 1993, TSR canceled the product line, with one notable exception, the novels. I know what you're saying, but Weiss and Hickman weren't writing for them by that point. That's true. What I haven't told you to this point is they weren't the only people writing Dragonlance novels. Just the best, in my opinion. Also, the Dragonlance novels were still making bank for TSR by the early 90s, so TSR decided to try to bring the readers of the novels back into the gaming fold. But in yet another crappy TSR decision, they did not bring it back for AD&D. Nope. They adapted it to their Saga system, publishing the Dragonlance Fifth Age game in 1996. In fairness, this should have worked. The Saga system is focused more on the narrative than AD&D, and it uses cards to determine effects of actions. But the system bombed. Adding that to the rest of the financial woes TSR was having by 1996, the company was sinking fast. That would be another reason why Weiss and Hickman figured they'd written their last Dragonlance novel. Fortunately for them, and for us, frankly, Wizards of the Coast bought TSR in 1997. Weiss and Hickman decided to reach out to the new boss and hope they weren't the same as the old boss. They pitched the War of Souls trilogy, and Wizards agreed. For the record, that trilogy had all three novels make the New York Times bestseller list during the releases in 2000, 2001, and 2002. Needless to say, this revitalized the setting from a commercial standpoint. It also didn't hurt that by 1998, the original Dragonlance trilogy that they'd written had sold over 3 million copies worldwide and spawned a ton of sequels, which, as I mentioned a moment ago, weren't necessarily written by Weiss and Hickman. As we've discussed on more than one occasion, D&D got its third edition in 2000. Wizards of the Coast made it a point to announce shortly after this release that Dragonlance would not be supported as a campaign setting for this new edition. What they did allow, though, was for the fans to support the setting through what was known initially as the Dragonlance L mailing list. The idea was that the mailing list would work on updates to the setting, and the group, which eventually changed its name to the Whitestone Council, would post all the updates on the Dragonlance Nexus website. Oh, and two of the people who were supporting the Whitestone Council? Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. What Wizards found out from the response to the Dragonlance Nexus was that there was still a decent-sized following for the Dragonlance setting. However, that didn't mean Wizards wanted to publish it for 3rd edition. Margaret Weiss had a solution to this, and Wizards licensed the right to the setting to her company, Sovereign Press, in 2002. In 2003, the Dragonlance campaign setting was released, updated with the newest version of the third edition rules. During this same time, more Dragonlance novels came out, some of which were written by Weiss and Hickman. In 2007, Sovereign Press's license was not renewed, and the new version of Dragonlance ceased to be officially supported. 
Again, I say officially because ever since the internet broke big, everything can be supported. It just takes a group of fans to do it online. In 2008, the fourth edition of D&D was released, and again, it did not spawn any official Dragonlance setting materials. So let's fast forward to 2020. In October of that year, Weiss and Hickman filed a lawsuit against Wizards of the Coast for allegedly breaching a contract the two had signed for a new trilogy of Dragonlance books. After a whole lot of online speculation from numerous sites, Weiss and Hickman agreed to voluntarily dismiss without prejudice their suit in December of 2020, which led most sources to believe that some sort of arrangement between Weiss, Hickman, and Wizards of the Coast had taken place. This was confirmed when the agent for Weiss and Hickman reported a few weeks after that dismissal that the deal for a new trilogy of Dragonlance novels was in place and the books would come out soon. For the record, Soon, in this case, means that the first novel in the new trilogy is expected in August of 2022. Speaking of 2022, let's look at March. Wizards released a PDF called Heroes of Kryn as a part of the Unearthed Arcana public playtest series for 5th edition of D&D. And much like with Spelljammer, numerous internet sites interpreted this to mean that the Dragonlance setting would be returning to D&D in some shape or form. In April, at the same time the Spelljammer announcement was made, it was announced that a new Dragonlance Adventure module will be released in December of 2022. For the record, it will be set concurrently to the War of the Lance, which those who've read the books will know is a conflict within the setting. Okay, usually when I cover a subject that has novels based on it, I cover the novels, their author, and the year of publication. I'm not doing that this time, because there have been so many novels published over the last 35 plus years, I could frankly take an entire podcast just to list them all. Just understand this, Weiss and Hickman have been the authors of the main storyline for the majority of its lifetime. Trilogies like Legends, Dragons of Summer Flame, and The War of Souls are among the storylines they've covered. Other authors have written books set in those same time periods, but usually either before or after the events in the trilogy. But the main storyline has almost always been Weiss and Hickman. Eight different computer games were released in the Dragonlance setting. They are Heroes of the Lance in 1988, Dragons of the Flame and War of the Lance in 1989, Champions of Kryn and Dragonstrike in 1990, Death Knights of Kryn and Shadow Sorcerer in 1991, and The Dark Queen of Kryn in 1992. In addition, Dragonlance has been an inspiration to numerous musicians over the years, including a number of German metal bands. I have no idea what it is with German metal bands and tabletop role-playing games, but you know what? Inspiration comes from all sources, so rock on. There was an animated movie released in 2008, Dragonlance, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, which was based on the first book of the series, and it featured the voices of Lucy Lawless, Kiefer Sutherland, Michael Rosenbaum, and Michelle Trachtenberg. In 2011, Hollysoft Studios Limited released the first part of a German audio adaptation of the Chronicles trilogy and announced further releases at that time. However, I have not been able to confirm whether or not those releases ever happened. And finally, let's look at comic books. In 1988, TSR and DC Comics teamed up for the Dragonlance series. Wizards of the Coast has also teamed up with Devil's Due Publishing for a few series as well. The Legend of Huma in 2003, Chronicles in 2005, and Legends in 2008. 
Now, I'd usually spend the next couple of minutes going over reviews for some of the product in the line. However, much like with actually naming all of the modules and books in the line, I could spend an entire show just reading reviews. Let's just say this. Over its history, Dragonlance has been overwhelmingly well-received. Sure, they've gotten some negative reviews, but in my opinion, a great number of those can be chalked up to either sour grapes or a jealous reviewer. I mean, I've been guilty of that as well from time to time. We all have. You read something, and while you really love it, it pisses you off that that person had that great idea. And well, you know, I could have written it if I just had the time and the idea. So let's just skip that part of this and move on to the setting itself, shall we? Dragonlance is set in the world of Kryn, which really has no real-world analog. The majority of the novels take place on the continent of Ancelon, which has a number of different regions for the various stories to have a base in. Some of the novels take place on the continent of Talados, which is northeast of Ancelon. One interesting thing about Dragonlance is that even though its creation was to have a world dominated by dragons, depending on the time period in which the novel or supplement is set in, dragons are either plentiful or rare. Most of the standard races of D&D are available in Dragonlance, as are most of the standard classes. Spellcasters are plentiful in this system, and it should be noted that Tracy Hickman uses Indonesian for the spells in Dragonlance, which he picked up as a Mormon missionary in Java. The history of Kryn is split roughly into five separate ages. The first age is the Age of Creation, when the gods are born and Kryn is formed. The second age is the Age of Dreams, which has rapid growth of the world's first great civilizations and the appearances of a number of new races. Three great wars between dragons and their minions take place during this time, and the wars are referred to throughout the series. The Third Age is the Age of Might, during which the Cataclysm obliterates the Great Empire of Istar and changes the surface of Kryn. The Fourth Age is a 300-year depression that follows the Third Age and is called the Age of Despair. The War of the Lands takes place during this age. The Fifth Age is the Age of Mortals. This age has been covered in the Age of Mortals novels and supplements. Due to time, in that we're starting to run short on it, I'm not going to get into the characters of Dragonlance, but rest assured this is a collection of colorful characters that continue to draw readers back to the novels and to the supplements they're involved of time and time again. I wanted to hit one more point about Dragonlance, and that's the Dragonlance itself. Dragonlances are weapons that were created during the Third Dragon War. They were designed for the express purpose of killing evil dragons. In the Dragonlance world, a Dragonlance is the only weapon that a mortal who doesn't have magic can use to kill a dragon. They're rare and require the use of two God-blessed artifacts to create. Now, lesser Dragonlances can be created by using one artifact, but they're not quite as powerful as their greater siblings. With Dragonlance getting a new life with 5th edition, it will be interesting to see what the authors of the new module will bring to the history of Kryn. We're just going to have to wait until December to find out. And with that, we bring today's tour to a close. Next week, we're going to take a look at D&D Beyond. Since I know for a fact that D&D Beyond won't cover an entire podcast, we're also going to take a look at some other online systems out there that gamers can, have, and do use regularly. I'm looking forward to that one, so make sure you're here next Friday. And I promise we'll be here Friday next week. Apologize for being a little late. Uh, Things happen. We'll just go there.
The week after that is episode 52, and I'm still just going to tease you about what we're doing. I'll lay out the subject at the end of next week's episode. I pinky swear promise on that. I encourage you to listen to my other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. As I've mentioned on this show before, we're taking a single-game system, creating a unique starting setting for it, building some characters, and creating the adventures to run your campaign. Our first subject is Deadlands Classic, and this week we'll be breaking down the first session I ran with my group using what we've created, and we'll look at what worked and what didn't work. After that, we'll get back into campaign creation as we work on building more scenarios for our group to campaign through. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts. The music we use on Role Playing History comes from Pixabay.com. Hit them up if you need license and royalty-free music for your project or production. A big thank you for your continued support of both of our shows. I've been catching a bit of flack online for the website not being done yet. I hear you, and I'm working on getting it done. Your support keeps me motivated, and hopefully I can get that motivated channel towards getting the website and YouTube stuff taken care of. But then again, I have a really cute nine-month-old grandson, and playing with him has kind of taken up some of that creative time I should be using for the company. I'd say I'm sorry about that, but that would be a partial lie. The kid's only going to be this age once, and... I'm sure as hell not going to miss it. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. You can follow us on Facebook, Bad GM Productions, Twitter, at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions, Twitch, Bad GM, and email us, BadGMProductions at gmail.com. Next week, we head into the great beyond. Ah, shit, I read that wrong. I meant to say next week we check into D&D Beyond. Here we go. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your role-playing history.